0: Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is uh, is a young man I hooked up with on the power of the LinkedIn. Uh, welcome to the show, Ben Cole.
2: Hi, thank you so much. You flatter me by saying I'm a young man. I'm actually 60 years old last February, but I still feel young. It's
0: all relative.
2: Like, maybe it's because I live in a fantasy world of the film business. Um, we do,
0: we do. So that's your- There's your segue, Ben. Do you want to give a brief introduction as to who you are and why I ended up, why I would draw you into my my arena?
2: Yes. Um, So I'm a filmmaker. I mean, I have done pretty much every job on a film set. I started off my life uh, from the age of 18, well, maybe about 16, being an actor. Uh, I was in love with the idea of my face being on a poster in the underground in London. I loved movies, I just liked the whole idea of creating a fantasy. And uh, I went to drama school, and I left drama school and got involved in uh, stage shows which closed. Every company I got into, it closed because of the Arts Council uh, grants being cut. And the first movie I got was with Anthony Perkins from Psycho. It was uh, the 42nd remake of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I was hired and flown out to Hungary. And Perkins took a liking to me. We sat there, had our first coffee, and he said, I like you. I'm going to mentor you like uh, uh, major A list actors had mentored him in his early days.
0: Wowzer.
2: And, uh, oh, sorry? I said, Wowzer. Yeah. And and I was sitting in Chelsea with a film crew around me and Mr. Perkins sitting opposite me going, we're going to be mates. You're playing my sidekick. And, um, uh, you know, and we got on like a house on fire. He'd been in Olivier's company. He was he was a classic gentleman. Uh, And so uh, I spent that movie collaborating with him. Uh, He would come on set with the director And we would all sit around, the three of us, and discuss what scene we were going to do. You know, he takes uh, the knife, slashes the girl. Um, You know, I'm doing this. I'm walking down the road. I meet him, blah, blah, blah. And I basically played a pimp on the streets of London. Um, And uh, with about 17 Hungarian models around me, I was egocentric. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I thought, here I have arrived in the film industry. I'm on my way to Hollywood. Everybody saw me as Perkins, young. Yeah, I was only 23, Perkins, young man. You know, I was, I was, I was just great. I was like a young version of Perkins, and I got on with everybody. And everyone treated with me with respect. They listened, and they had integrity. They did the right thing, even though no one was watching. Um, And they trusted me to to be a good actor and uh, to be to be good in film. And, you know, it was great initiation. Um, And I left that movie on a great high going, wow, I'm going to get involved in this film industry. Um, And I came back to London and a week later, I got a phone call saying, do you want to be want to play the lead in my movie? I came down to the set. I saw you working. You know, we we can't work with this actor on this um, on this movie and uh, it was called howling five the rebirth now if you're aware howling movies are the only movies that have done seven sequels and i was in number five and i had to play a war photographer and i arrived in hungary uh, on the thursday evening on a flight and i had a, a a medical the next day and i'm on set i haven't even read the script and I'm, uh, I, I meet the producers who tell me that my agents offered, a, offered them a blowjob and I should get rid of her. And all they're going to do is throw pieces of paper at me and I've just got to walk on set and say the lines. And I said, well, could I read the script? Or can I, can I know what kind of character I'm playing? Don't worry about it. We'll get to that, they said. Um, and about a week later, I still hadn't read the script. And I was invited into the producer's room. And he turned around to me, he's an Australian man. I won't mention his name because it's, it's, not, it's not ethical. And um, he said to me, uh, Ben, we can't use your rushes. They're terrible. I thought that was a nice sort of opening line to meeting the producer of the movie. And he said, quite frankly, um, we want to give you some time off because it's obvious you don't know what you're doing. And I said, well, I haven't read the script. So, of course, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I've just been thrown on the set. Here's your costume. Here's the lines. Go and say it. Um and so uh, he then said, "Okay, I'm going to give you three days off, and I want you to fly back to England, read the script on the plane, pick up a package for us, and bring it back." I said, "Well, it seems like a long-winded way of reading a script, but why? What's going on? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Just bring it through hand luggage, and it'll be fine. It'll have our pro- production company's name all over it." Blah blah. blah. And I said, "Well, look, um, just one thing." Um, They asked me has anyone given me a package to bring do you want me and uh, do you want me to lie and he said yes and he looked at me with a a smile that could direct a movie and I uh I said well uh, I won't do it unless I know what's in the box and he said uh three ounces of cocaine and I went well that's 14 years in prison he said yes but you'll be a hero on the movie set. I've got everyone on very low wages because there was going to be lots of coke around. And I had a choice. I was either going to go down that road and uh, sell, my, sell my soul to movies, or I was going to say no. And I said no. And I had horrendous time. He'd sit on set going through withdrawals, most of the crew were going through cocaine withdrawals, they're working 18 hours a day. Uh, it was my birthday the next day. They invited me into a hotel room. They gave me a dying pansy and walked out. They were basically been told by this guy, by this producer, that there was no coke on set because I had chickened out. So in a nutshell, that's a story of what I grew up with. I was a young, naive, talented actor, and I walked into the dark side. Um, and I came back from that movie just about surviving in it. Um, and I, I decided that... Uh, I really couldn't do that. And I spent about eight or nine years trying to do it in commercials and theater. And it was the whole business was changing, Uh, cleaning up a bit, but uh, it was still very manipulative. You had the Harvey Weinsteins. I've got uh, 15 stories like Harvey Weinstein on my belt. So what did I do about it? And I decided that my greatest hobby, if I wasn't going to act, was photography and I would become a cinematographer because in all the movies I'd done, I'd seen this cool, calm, collected guy sitting behind the camera, tweaking the lights, being stress free. Well, relatively stress free. And the director's running around with his pulling his hair out, shouting at people, saying, We don't have time for that. Um, no, my, my idea is better than your idea. It's my way or the highway. Because they were exhausted and stressed. And I decided that if I was going to make this a lifetime career, I would find out why some movies are great and some movies are just good. And I didn't want to make good movies. I wanted to make great movies. And I, uh, I, so I came back and I trained in the new digital format of cameras, the digital camera, not the film camera, but that digital. And I um, I decided that I would uh, start to make movies with DV cameras, with cinematic lenses in front and I got a look of 35mm on a cheap camera and everyone couldn't believe it. Now it's easy. You get a lens, you put it on the back of a DSLR and you basically got a 35mm look. In those days, it was very difficult. And I got a job going off around the world for 153 locations with a movie called One Giant Leap. It was nominated for two Grammys. It was the highest pirated DVD in the world. And that year, it was the year 2000 it was released and it became a cult hit. And it was basically collaborating with musicians all the way around the world creating 13 bass tracks, and then going out and finding some famous musician, going to his house, sitting in his living room and saying, listen to these backing tracks now. Will you play something amazing on front of We interviewed actors, actresses. We interviewed movie stars. We interviewed uh, gurus on the, on the streets of India, hobos, prostitutes, policemen, anyone we could talk to, to that would collaborate with us, i.e., they wouldn't prepare anything. They would just come on and be filmed. So we talked to a policeman about sex and a, uh, and, a, and, a, and a and a porn star about justice or her or anger, anything that they hadn't really talked about before, and it became a sensation. And that kind of established me. And since then. I've been making kind of uh, B-movies and uh, nominated documentaries and drama docs and commercials and pop videos and all that, and I've been doing that for 40 years. So that's me in a can. What I'd like to get onto is what I then did, because I came back and I decided that all these people that I was angry with that had taken my innocence as a filmmaker and had uh, sweet talk to me, into giving myself away. I was a bit naive and a bit young, and I thought movies were like a family organisation where you would make amazing stories and all feel like a bunch of actors in a theatre company. No, I was wrong. It's quite cutthroat out there, and behind the set, there are strange things happening. So I, I, I got involved. I decided that the problem was not in the people in the film industry that I'd worked with. The problem was with me. I didn't know how to set my boundaries in a fantasy world where you were either God or a slave. So I decided to join a men's group in Brighton that um, mentors young offenders from prison. And I thought that will wake me up. That will make me find out because, quite frankly, any young uh, uh, offender uh, could have some of the same manipulative skills as a movie producer or a director or an actor or whatever, or a, a lighting guy, you know. A grip, a spark, whatever because um, i've i'd witness uh, a, a spark who is the you probably know goes around uh, uh handling manhandling lights for the for the gaffer who's working for the d o p it's a team, but i've witnessed those kind of guys walk up to a leading actress and say You're shit in this aren't you now you imagine the kind of vulnerability an actor has. To go on a set in front of like Piccadilly Circus and do something really rather vulnerable, especially in like a horror movie, Uh, it can throw them and they can have a hissy fit and end up in their trailer going, I'm not coming out till that guy fucks off, goes out. I then started to learn and I started to sit and I trained and I understood that there are five essential qualities to surviving healthily in the film industry. And I'm going to talk about them in a sense of movies that I've worked on. So you get a real practical understanding.
0: Before, before you do, Ben, I mean, you, you, said, you said there was an organisation, but you didn't say what it was called. Do you want to tell people what it is?
2: The organisation is called A Band of
0: Brothers. And how did you, fi- how did you find the Band of Brothers? How did, or the, how did I they... had
2: a mate rang me up and said, I hear you want to get involved in a men's group. I know this one starting in Brian is in this guy's loft. And I thought, oh, that'll be good. I went and they were discussing a, 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 it's almost like a, writing almost like a movie script for an initiation to initiate young men to go through an experience that they'd never experienced any before that would rock their worlds and would actually wake up and learn to take hold of their own lives and become what we call a sovereign of their own lives. And in one weekend. Now, prison doesn't work in six years. So it was an ambitious idea. So we take these we take these young men out into the forest and we do 42 processes over a weekend. It's intense for them. But they get to explore cathart- through cathartic experiences. They get to explore the story of their lives and they get to make new choices about it. And then they get a mentor for three months. And this, to me, was exactly what I was looking for in the movie directors that I'd worked with. I wanted them to take me under their wing and to mentor me into what this movie was. Instead, I got one day a director turning around to me and saying, will you bring Ben's contract over? I'm going to tear this up if you don't give me an Oscar-winning performance. Now, you can imagine as a young 23-year-old actor believing he was on his way to Hollywood, that was a bit weird. And my confidence wasn't very good after that. I felt a bit nervous.
0: I was going to say weird. Weird's one word for it, but just in, just generally intimidated would be the other.
2: Yeah, you see, the, the, the big problem with the film industry is that you have to, on these making ofs that you see on a DVD, and if you watch them, everyone has to be seen to be brilliant and a wonderful person. You don't really work again if you start gossiping around somebody's behavior. And you're asking me a bit while listening to this, well, why are you doing it? Well, I'm doing it because I've learned from it. I've learned how because what happens is all the energy on a film set goes into the gossiping in the background into the what's he doing you know every person on set is a director trying to take over the director's role if the director isn't a collaborative director if the director's saying look it's my way the highway it's my mistake is better than your mistake and is a bit of a tyrant everyone else will start being a tyrant to survive and then you start getting game of thrones on a movie set so on that howling 5 the rebirth the director was sacked after a week cuz they couldn't cut his rushes uh the 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 uh, first assistant director was made into the director the dop was was sacked their first ad was sacked there were 32 people replaced over the first month of that filming because it was not led with any integrity or accountability. So if somebody made a a mistake on set, uh, the shit would roll downhill until the runner gets sacked, because he's blamed. And this is a kind of unwritten elephant in the room on a movie set. So I'm trying to talk about it because I want to clean it up i want to i want to train young people and this is what i'm doing now while i'm making movies on the side my sole purpose as it were is to take young filmmakers and teach them something about how to survive the horrors of a horror movie
0: so so your experience with a band of brothers led to you taking on the responsibility of trying to mentor young directors in, in how yes, that to be on Yes, in order
2: to mentor young directors, I have to walk the talk. I have to know what I'm doing. I can't just have witnessed it in others and then decide I'm not going to do that because I need to find out what do I do.
0: People that have listened to BritFlix podcast before will will know that I like to do my, my list of five and five great. And I think we're um, what we call in this the five powers of collaboration. Yeah. Number one is accountability What is it about accountability that makes for good collaborators?
2: So after years of watching and shooting movies I was invited one day to make a movie and direct a movie myself And at last I had an opportunity to do it the way I wanted to do it Um, And in that way, I wanted to be collaborative. I wanted to hire the best, and I wanted to listen to them. And I wanted to be accountable for the way I behaved. So every morning, I would call a circle of everybody involved in the film. And the name of this film was...? we was called Frosted Glass. It won a silver award at the uh, Independent International Film Awards in Los Angeles uh, a few years ago, and it broke new ground. It's a film about uh, Asperger's Syndrome about a young man who goes through his life and he writes a poetry book and starts rapping it on the stages on the pubs of London and he becomes a bit of a sensation and this journalist turns up to interview him about his book who's also Asperger's but she doesn't know it and he tells the story of his life and they never leave the living room their one one wall is blue chroma keyed and he gets up off the sofa and he walks into that environment And she plays all the other characters. Difficult thing to do, but was written by an Asperger's guy. And I decided, you know, if you don't know anything about Asperger's syndrome, you're hypersensitive and you don't understand jokes. Now, on a movie set, that's really dangerous because there are jokes flying around all over the place. People having banter. Um, and really enjoying themselves. And if they don't like somebody, they'll banter and tell them they don't like them. Uh, And someone with Asperger's is extremely sensitive to this and doesn't know that it's a joke, because they only see the truth behind it. So I was forced to start applying what I'd learned with this mentoring organization, a band of brothers, and go into uh, and, and uh, basically implement some of the things. And one of the things is every morning you, 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 you have a little circle. You sit on chairs in a circle and you say, how are you? And you listen. And each person goes round and they say how they are this morning. Now, the gaffer might have uh, had an argument with his wife, having discovered like happened on one set uh, and discovered his wife was sleeping while he was working on the movie with, a, with his neighbor. And he came to set and the, the movie was pretty ruined that day because he was angry and he didn't know. So in the circle, he can talk about that and everyone knows what's going on with him. And you go around in a circle and at the end of the day and then everybody's clear and everyone trusts. And it's all that, you know, everybody feels like they've been heard and and the problems of that day will be supported. Um And. At the end of the day, you sit around in a circle and you go, right, what stopped you from working, doing your best today? And anyone can say anything. And so one afternoon, uh, the uh, boom operator who holds the mic over the actors uh, turned around to me and said, well, I, I'm angry with you, the boss. He said, uh, I was sniffing on set today because I, uh, I was a lot of dust around and i have been sneezing. And you turned around to me and said, oh, you've uh, been doing some coke. Have you spread it around then? And now, if I'd been an usual director that I've worked with in my life, I would have said, look, I was only joking. Yeah, can't you tell your joke? Come on, let's move on. In other words, I'm not going to listen to you. I am not going to be accountable for my actions, because I am God. I am the director. Instead, what I said was, you're right. I was feeling disempowered. I was stressed and I was trying to make a joke and clear the tense air. So I put my hand up and I said, you're right. I made myself feel better and more powerful because I was being disempowered by making a joke about your past. And I apologize. It will never happen again. If it does, I am accountable for it. and You can call me on it. Now, what that, what happened was that in a small sweaty flat, a council flat in one room, there's a, another family living in the bedroom all day long. In that one room with a glass front on the hottest day of the year, everybody chilled out. They saw that I was accountable for something that I had done that made someone feel not good enough. And the lead actress immediately stepped up and said, you know what? This script needs 27 pages losing. I used to do it at school with with stories and with my kids' work, my English lessons. I'm happy to edit it tonight and cut down the scenes for the next day. Another guy said, there's nobody doing continuity. I'm happy to keep an eye on costume and make sure the props are right. The producer said, look, we had a problem with lunch today. I will cook lunch tomorrow in the small kitchen that's just outside the the room we were filming in. And uh, even the family next door volunteered to do any errands if we needed to. And suddenly we had no problems shooting 70 pages of script in nine days. As ten pages a day, basically seven pages a day,
0: and you feel like that—that that stemmed from that—that you—you showing that
2: it absolutely changed the whole atmosphere because I proved that I was not a tyrant director, I was not God, and if I did anything that anybody felt undermined their ability to to do it with joy and happiness and and fun, uh, then they could call me on it, and I would be accountable, and it would stop immediately.
0: Well, this 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 segues lovely into your into number two, which is which is about trust and collaboration. Now you've you've cited a film called A Woman Scorned. Do you want to tell us what 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 trust is to collaboration?
2: A Woman Scorned is my first drama movie that I ever worked on. It won Scarefest Film Festival uh, best best short film, um, and it won Acapulco Film Festival as the best short film in here that it was released. I had shot one movie on a mo- movie camera. Um, and I just edited it. And it was sitting on a VHS tape in my loft apartment in Old Street in London. And in walks Trevor Etienne. You may know Trevor. He was the uh, Rastafari pirate in Pirates of the Caribbean. He sticks his hand through the bars and it turns to a skeletal hand and then you realise they're dead. Um, And he was a starring actor on uh, playing um, at the National Theatre. He was in BBC dramas. He was the next young face uh, Blackface on, on the BBC cover. Um, he 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 is an amazing guy. And he walked into my warehouse saying he would he'd lost his location for a film, and he wanted to film. And while he was looking around my 2,000 square foot warehouse, which had a set in it and all that, um, he uh, he he confessed to me that he'd lost his director of photography. That he he'd done the first film. He was awful. It was bad tempered, and he couldn't trust him. Um, and I, I said, fine, and I showed him the tape, and from that moment on, he said, look, I trust you. I have seen your showreel. What you do, you're in charge of. Uh, you work out how we're going to film it, and I will direct the actors. That I'm an ex-actor. That's my strength. I recognize your strength. I'm going to trust you that you know what you're doing. Well, we won Acapulco Film Festival with the result we came up with collaborative ways of editing between scenes shooting on a steadicam and then and dropping off to the left so that the next doorway comes up like a clock and then we go into the next room come out of the room that slips off to the left and the next scene comes up it was like watching a, a yeah a clock going round and it gave us a real style to the film um and you know you have to imagine i'm a tw- i was a 35 year old White privileged middle class guy on a set full of black actors and black technicians, and he trusted me with everything, um, and we had a fantastic experience, and it won lots of awards. And I suddenly realised that because he had trusted that I know what I'm doing, even though I'd only made one movie in my in my life, um, he he had empowered me to make it the, to do my best. And to decide, make all the important decisions myself. Now, I've, I've, I've shot other movies where the directors have stood behind my shoulder and said, pan there a little bit, ben, uh, up a bit. No, no, Oh, I'm not sure that's right. And they have tried to do my job for me. And what happens is I don't feel trusted. And I end up uh, abdicating and saying, you know what, I'll just do what I'm told. And that's when, uh, especially anyone on set is told what to do, they stop deciding what's right for them to do. And as a creative artist, you have to know what you do well, and you have to decide, I'm going to do that, because it's what I'm going to love doing. Uh, And too many directors out there, they think they have to act for the actors, they think they have to tell the DOP what to do, and it's, it's horrendous. Um, and so, when I was, when I am trusted on a movie, and someone turns around and says, "What do you think, Ben?" Because I trust that you know what you're doing, um, I always come up with an amazing idea, and it's fun, and uh, it, it it creates. More importantly, it creates a great result.
0: Indeed. Now, now, one of the things that sort of walks hand in hand with trust is is uh, is someone's integrity, which is your which is your third. Topic for uh, for what makes a good collaborator.
2: So this is a integrity is the word that I never really understood. I, I knew it was a kind of educated word for something that was good about someone, but I didn't really ever know what it meant. And I was asked to do a, a, a quarter of a million pound documentary, travelling around the world, um, looking at uh, values. And this was just when I was in this men's group, and I just thought, this is great. I'm going to really understand what's going on here. And we ended up, to cut a long story short, we ended up in Australia, in a place called Newcastle. And it's called Newcastle because it's in the middle of Australia, and a lot of people from Newcastle settled there. And... It's the roughest, toughest town in a a place with very little water and about 50 degrees during the summer. And it was a comprehensive school. And I don't know why we went there, but the producer said we should go there because they've got this secret. Basically, the school's full of rough, tough street kids. But they have passed every academic accolade in the whole of Australia in six years. Now why is this? Well, the uh the I, I met the headmaster who'd just given a, a speech to two hundred five to eleven year olds, uh, all sitting on the floor, quiet well-behaved listening to every word he said and i don't know about you but if you've got kids you know that's pretty rare occurrence in, a, in an infant school and he, i said to him I, you know his lecture that morning had been about respect and integrity and uh, I, I asked him to interview three young boys so he gave me three young boys and i said to them where's your favorite place in the school, thinking they're going to say behind the bicycle sheds, but no, they said the library. I said, "Are you sure?" The library wasn't my favourite place at school, and they said, "They said, yeah, 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 it is." So we went to the library. and We sat there, and one kid with a broken tooth and a scar down his face and looked like he'd had a pretty rough life. I turned around to him and I said, "So you understand values? What is um, what's your favourite value?" And he said, "Integrity." And I said, "Do you know what? You're eleven years old." I'm I'm 45. Well, well, I don't really know what it means. Will you tell me what it means? He says, OK, I'll tell you it in a story. He said. If you're walking down the playground and you see a sweet wrapper on the floor, do you pick it up and put it in the bin when no one is watching? Now, my jaw sank I suddenly understood what this word integrity meant doing the right thing when no one is watching. Now, the film industry is all about creating illusions. and as long as when people are watching the audience, they see that doesn't matter what happens on set, behind camera. what what as long as the film looks good, the problem is this: if no one has integrity. A lot of things don't get done. A lot of people get hurt or don't feel good enough or their talent isn't used for the right. And so on that movie, uh, the place that I last expected a piece of really good wisdom to put in a documentary came out of an 11-year-old boy in a roughest school in Australia.
0: Ben, I used to work as a communication manager. And what that 11-year-old has just described... (laughs) is 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 what the whole corporate world is is trying to get their staff to do which is that go the extra go the extra mile uh without being told to do it so they feel empowered they have the integrity and they will do it so it's like it is the literally if i could have if i could have had that 11 uh, year old's advice i could have short circuited a lot of confusion because the idea of picking up a sweet wrapper t- when no one's looking describes it better than anything I've ever tried to do.
2: <laughs> no, no, and it was from an 11-year-old kid in a school, you know. I'll just, I'll just put a little uh, a, a thing at the end of this story. I can't remember what the word is now, but um, a caveat at the end of the story What they found in the school was after one term of teaching these concepts to these children, their parents were coming back to the school on parents' evenings saying, we demand that you give us evening classes. And they were like, what? And they said, well, I've got my child coming home at uh, at the end of the day, and he's calling me out and telling me I have no respect and no integrity. Well, what the fuck does that mean? What are you teaching my kid? Because he's suddenly waking up and he's suddenly doing his homework and doing everything I ask him to do. I mean, I want to know. What are you teaching him? That, now, imagine you do that in the film industry. You get everyone to serve the film and serve the fact that it is, that I every action I do is serving that they were going to make a good film, not going to make me look good.
0: There's that famous um, example, isn't there, at NASA? Where a guy goes up to the was was speaking to the was speaking to the cleaner and he says so you know what's what what what's your role in all this and he just said I help people get on the moon because obviously the the theory being without a clean NASA you don't it's a mess and then if it's a mess maybe people don't get to do the job as well and so on and so forth so if you understand your role is putting people on the moon not sweeping the floor equally your role as a spark isn't just to make sure the electrics are right your role is to ensure the smooth running of a film and if that's everybody's role in the film then it's easy to imagine what's what's the best thing to do whenever you're faced with two choices which one's going to make the smooth running of the film
2: yeah so which choice do i make and constantly on a movie set you're meeting forks in the road now, I could go over there, which can make my life easier, and get someone else to do the job, or I can go to the left and I can actually do the right thing when no one's watching, and I can make sure that that guy's job is easier because I'm doing the right thing.
0: Now, number four in your uh, in your list of five is not a word I thought I was thinking we were going to be tackling, but, but you've given me assumption, and that's got why have the writer on set as a question next to it? So do you want to talk about what what assumption means in terms of collaboration in a
2: film? So the last movie I did as an actor was a $25 million movie in Cinecitta in Italy. It was with Adriano who who's a major Italian star, Toto Cascio from Cinema Paradiso, and Christopher Lee and Carol Baker from Hollywood. This was a big deal. This is $25 million. And the, uh, the director on the set had made the assumption that unless the actors knew, uh, unless the actors were directed, every inch of the way, chin down, little smile there, little look there, uh, be a bit more grumpy here, be be angry here. Unless they did that, he wouldn't have a good movie. He made the assumption that no one knew what the fuck they were doing, even Christopher Lee, who'd done 4,400 movies in his life. Carol Baker, who'd starred opposite Marilyn Monroe in most of her movies. You know, they, In fact, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story from that movie. Um, I, uh, Carol Baker turned around to me and she said that she had moved from Hollywood to, uh, in Italy, uh, with a major, major director who had sent her a script that was written on a toilet roll. And it ran like this, a three, five, seven, oh, nine, one. And what he was going to do was going to get her to just speak gobbledygook, and he was going to dub Italian on the end of it. This is how they worked in those days. Uh, but he gave her a, a storyline, and she re- she knows Italian. She was half Italian, uh, written in Italian. So she turns up at chinichita and she's driven to the studios by her driver who a, was a very handsome man in his 80s, uh, been in the movie business all his life. And he drove her from the to the set and she comes on set and he says to her very secretly, I don't want you to meet the, your father, the actor playing your father, until you are on set. I want the surprise. I want strangers meeting each other because you never met your father. And just go on and play the scene. Uh, You were having an argument and he told her the story and she had to go on and speak rubbish to the camera. I mean, a very difficult thing for a Hollywood actor. But this is how they work in Italy. So she goes on and sitting under the table is a well-known Italian actor crouching underneath the desk of her father's office. And sitting at her father's desk is the driver from that day. And he is just moving his mouth around saying rubbish. And then she interrupts, has an argument with him and walks out. And she thinks it's a joke. They have told me that this is going to happen and they're seeing if I can handle it. So she soldiered through, gave a great performance and left. And he went, fine, thanks. She said, hang on a minute. Where's the actor playing my dad? And he said, "Oh no, no, no! I decided that the uh, your driver had a better face for your for your director, for your your father." And sure enough, when she saw the movie come out in Italian with overdubbed with Italian, there was her driver playing her father, and you never saw the main actor underneath the table. Now he was feeding lines to this other actor, encouraging him to do stuff. Because they're not recording sound, so um, the assumption that uh, that that I need to do something for you, um, and okay, so. That's when there isn't a writer on set. That's when a director has written it. But I worked on Made in Dagenham. It was directed by my brother, Nigel Cole. It it had uh, Sally Hawkins. It had Bob Hoskins. You know, it had some fantastic A-list starring actors. And, of course... Uh, my I was working on it, shooting second camera, so I would sit, I would, I would go in when there was black and white 16 mil to be shot or a second camera to be operated. Um, and it was a a brilliant underrated film for for, for how brilliant I, I felt it was. But um when you work with people like uh Bob Hoskins, who's a lovely, lovely, gentle, kind man. Um, what you get is his rewrites. Um, and on this, uh, on this movie Tilt in Italy, uh, I had walked, I had the memory of walking out of the studio and seeing the two writers, Italian young people who'd written this script for a, for a competition, sitting out the studio crying one day. And I I had walked out and I saw them crying and I said, What's wrong? And in their broken English, they explained to me that the director had torn up their script and rewritten it. And it wasn't it wasn't as good. It wasn't the right, same story. It wasn't the story that made them win the competition. So in Made in Dagenham, cut to years later, a 10 million pound to, to shoot movie. Um the the, the the writer, my elder brother decided to invite the writer, William Ivory, onto the set. And he was a real collaboration. So you've got an A-list actor walks on set and says, you know what, Nigel? I thought I wouldn't say that here. I thought I'd say this. Now, If you can imagine if you're a director wanting to please an A-list actor because you know the movie is going to be seen a lot because of this A-list actor involved in it, you might say whatever you like. You can say whatever you like because I'm your greatest fan. Keep it sweet, right? But no, what you can do is you can turn around to the writer who spent months rewriting that line, finding the right word. And what the writer can do is take the heat away from a director or a producer and say, well, actually, saying this line means this in the plot and it's going to repeat later on. And so I would really like this part of the plot to stay in because you can end up uh, or there's a, a saying in the movie world that all movies are Oscar winning movies when they're in when they're when they're in the script stage. Because the writer has sat and written and written and written and done his best. And then you get onto the movie set and they don't have time or they don't have the right costume or they don't have the right car and they rewrite that scene so they can shoot it that day and save a fortune. If the writer is not there and you make the assumption you know what the writer was trying to do without him being there and watching and being your best mate and serving the movie, then the movie starts going off in a strange direction and you end up something halfway between a horror movie or a romance or an action movie and you're losing most of your audience. You know you're either a horror movie person or you're an action movie or you're a romance movie, depending on who you're watching the movie with. When I'm watching a movie with my wife, I like different kinds of movies than I would if I was on my own and having a few beers with the lads, if you know what I mean. So, um, so actually having the writer there, because what well, I tell you one thing on on Oscar-winning movies, the script is often put through about thirteen writers, and the last writer that wrote that last draft. Uh, is often invited on set because they defend the storyline. It's too easy for a director to sit in an edit and decide, you know what, that actor's performance is going to make me look bad. So I'm going to cut that scene and we'll make it a bit more obscure. And in a movie, especially in uh, some, a thriller movie, there is one scene that changes the plot and if that scene is cut out because somebody didn't do their job properly, because they were exhausted or stressed, or something had distracted them, something more important had distracted them that day, then the scene, the the movie ends up without that scene that changes the plot.
0: Yeah, because I think I think it's I think the theory is that when when you're writing, it's setup is what what creates mystery and drama, and you can you can never have too many setups, but. If you've got payoffs with no setup, they they really are weird.
2: They really are weird. They become like some Eastern European art movie, some little you know that's a bit flawed, but there's something interesting about it. Ie, is missing all the key scenes.
0: Now, the key to the kind of theory what you're saying is so when when uh, when your brother Nigel is, is saying to William, look, can you explain to? actor a here that um we can't change the line because of this this and this that actor accepting that is down to your fifth heading which is listening and why why is listening such a cuz you know if if i'm being honest listening is is on the face of it quite a passive thing to do but are you going to explain to me why it's also active as well and what what makes it part of collaboration
2: there is a disease in the film industry where there is a hierarchy so you have the major the colonel who are the producers and exec producers and you have the sergeant major who is the director and then you have you know you have like an army yeah
0: it's very much like it's very much hierarchical like a military operation isn't it
2: exactly yeah in fact is that that's no there is a reason why it's called the shoot Because you're going out into the world to shoot your prey and to get the story in the can. And there is a tremendous uh, temptation as I once took my mother on a Spielberg set. I was invited by one of the technicians to go. It was set in London in the Docklands. It was, uh, it was war happening. And there was Spielberg with his entourage. And I took my mother on set and she managed, because of her grace and charm, managed to end up sitting around the monitor with the director Um, And he and she was sitting there and she turned to the director and said, do you know what? Why are you doing it like that? Shouldn't you be doing it like this? so she made an assumption did
0: the penny drop as much as it just for me did no, you a penny? i
2: immediately walked up to her put my hand over her mouth and dragged her by her hair away from the set as quickly as possible without any no I, I didn't but you know what i mean that was what i wanted to do this is spielberg for god's sake um so but the problem is she was right and when i saw the movie I saw. I remembered what my mother had said, and I, I realised that that day was a stressful afternoon, and of course Spielberg wasn't going to listen to some fucking guest's mother who would come up on set. And I and I and I'll go back. Uh, I'll go back to the the first Frosted Glass movie. Uh, I nearly didn't do that movie. I was on a short film with a steady cam strapped to my body, walking through a church door, out of time and stressed. And a young, uh, young guy walks up to me in a cowboy hat with a stutter and said, oh, it, 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 excuse me, I've written a, a f- 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 film and would you shoot my film? Now, normally, I would say, look, I've got a steady camera on me. It's a really heavy camera. I've really got to get through this door. I've got to get on with this film. I can't consider any others. You know how many people a week come up to me and say, I like the way you work, but I really would you know, would you do my movie for me? But there was something about this kid. He had a cowboy hat. I like wearing cowboy hats. He had a stutter. It took a lot of courage for him to walk up to me and ask me. He must have spent a week thinking about doing it and and finally summoned up the courage. And he had a a syndrome called Asperger's syndrome and he'd written it from his personal experience and no one had ever done that before. And suddenly I thought, hang on a minute, I've got to listen to this guy. And he's told me a story in about 30 seconds, which for a man with a very bad stutter is an achievement, believe me. He said he'd worked in a law firm as a filing clerk for 12 years. He had saved £1,000 a year out of his very badly paid job, and he'd saved £12,000, and he reckons we could shoot it in a week, and he's come up with some ideas on how to save budget, and he, and he just wants to be the writer. And it doesn't matter if he's not on set. And I said, you better be on set. I need you. You're the guy who came up with this thing. If I have a problem, I need an answer. Right then, right there. And I said I would listen. And I said I would read his script. Now, if you read a script, you're listening to the soundtrack and the voices going on in your head. If I'm on set and I'm a cinematographer on this movie, I always watch and listen to the stills guy. Because he has no pressure on him. And he always stands where I should be putting my camera. Because he's wandering around free as a bird, able to do it. And you know what? Every every stills guy always walks up to the DOP or the camera operator going and shows him a photograph of an amazing angle on the actors that you never even thought about. So it's always that one person who has that courage. And you don't know when it's going to happen but to actually listen uh, unless it's taking you way away from your idea and then it might be a fresh idea. So I'm going to finish with a little story. I was asked to film a documentary on a band of brothers and what we do. That is mentoring young offenders straight out of prison. And we have an 80% success rate and the ceo of the charity called me in and he said ben i want to make you a, i want you to make a documentary about what we do the problem is you can't film what we do now you can imagine i make a documentary about what people do and what it means and i can't film anything because they've got to keep this a mystery So I said to him, well, I'm sorry, this gives me a really bad problem. What the hell am I going to film? And he said, I don't know, Ben, but you've been with us for 12 years. You've trained in our techniques. Why not just go, go to people and listen? Now, the greatest honoring I can of your talent as a pod maker is listen to you. It's something that I teach and something I need to learn. In fact, everything that comes out of my mouth as a teacher, of a mentor of young filmmakers, is I need to learn it too. Because by teaching, by, by directing, by instructing, by, uh, by, by listening to others, I get to learn what I need to learn. And every time I do it. So I went off and I interviewed 42 men. Some had gone to prison, some had been for GBH, some had sold drugs, some had become mentors later on in their life. Most men had a reason why they wanted to do this. And uh, you've seen the film. It's 56 minutes of men talking. Possibly the most boring thing you can do in a documentary is just have talking heads. Um, I I was able to charm and spark my way into filming just a few of the little processes to demonstrate what people were talking to. But I I got things like, you know, when I go into anger management, i get this posh woman who comes in with glasses and uh, a clipboard and she sits down and i know nothing about her and she wants to talk me to talk about my private life and she says to me i know why you're angry you're angry because of this and you know what i think sod her what the fuck does she know about my life i don't trust her and i shut up no one has ever asked me why are you angry that's a bit weird, isn't it? Because everyone wants to know why I'm angry. And I got young men telling me that because I, I stopped and I, and I just asked a few questions and I really listened. So here's the technique. I cannot speak sense unless I know you're really listening. What my mind does is it goes, I'm going to speak rubbish until, I, until this guy's listening to me. But because I know you're really listening, what comes out of my mouth is far better than if I think you are not listening. So the next time somebody turns around to me and says, "Uh, you're speaking a lot of rubbish, instead of me going, well, you're not listening, I ask them to listen, that I'm finding it difficult to make sense because I don't really feel they're listening. So if they could just listen a bit harder to me, I might start speaking sense end of argument. That person has something constructive to do, and uh, my problem is solved. They've listened to me, I've been heard, and, uh, and then I can start listening to them. In Africa, they have a brilliant, brilliant technique. They have what's called a talking stick. When I hold the talking stick, you cannot interrupt me. What it means is I come to the point quickly. I don't fear that you're going to interrupt me. And then I want to reply to this great thing that's come out of my mouth. I hand the stick to you. I have to listen. I cannot interrupt you. You could go on for days, but you don't need to because you haven't been interrupted.
0: I'll let you into a secret, Ben. I do a podcast because outside of the podcast, I think friends of mine would would, you know, without fear of offence, refer to me as a gobshite, i.e. I talk a lot. Because I like talking. I like thinking, and I think when I talk. But a podcast is with guests on is no good if it's only me talking. So the podcast for me has been an ongoing training of the ability to to listen to others, and obviously the more remote you are, like we're not in the same room together, we can only hear each other's voices. If I don't listen, very quickly it'll become apparent and very quickly there won't be a podcast. So part of what I've part of my own personal development is, is through literally doing a podcast. One
2: mentor once said to me, if you listen, you learn something. If you talk, you're just spouting the same old thing that you know already.
0: What I saw in the in the documentary about Bander Brothers is something I'd never really seen before, which is on the face of it traditional kind of, almost like tribal, collegiate kind of approach where we're all in this together. But contrary, contrary to that, everybody was given the chance to be, the, was, was asked to be the individual who they were as well and were accepted for that at the same time, which I thought was a really powerful message from the film.
2: Yeah, that's the way we set it up. So what I did was what people don't do when they speak to a young offender, I talk about my own young offence. I talk about the stuff I've done wrong what i've learned from it i what we call model it for somebody so you you probably do the same when you immediately meet somebody and have a, that first openly chat to them you tell them about where you're coming from who you are and they learn something about you so they know who's listening and to me that's extremely important especially on a movie set when you've got 40 people all wanting to be heard so i do it before the shoot i invite anyone who wants to be heard anyone to turn up half an hour before the shoot to sit on set i have a storyboard i have what i want to achieve there for the day and i ask them a question first of all what what what's going to prevent you from doing a good job today and what support do you need they go around, they go around the day going oh my god there's a servant leader there there's someone who is serving them to do their best and oh of course i know eventually if i'm the director it's all going to come back on me and everyone's going to think i'm the i'm the great guy so why people don't it's the fear of not being good enough fear that you might take my position, you might steal my authority, you might steal the glamour, which is the only reason I'm up 18 hours a day, seven days a week trying to make this this illusion real.
0: And and in a way, you, what you show in your documentary as well is that, well, certainly the young men you, you show us in the film, is there's degrees of that in all walks of life. We're forever... Not wanting to reveal what we don't know, what we don't know, what we're doing, and that might be just how to get up in the morning and go and get a job. We don't admit that, so we go out and do something bad. We don't want to get help for that, you know, and so and so it and so it goes, you know. That... Can people see the documentary anywhere? I mean, oh, you sent me a link to watch it. It's,
2: um, it's very. Uh, uh, people should look out for it. If you go onto uh, bandofbrothers.org.uk. Um, you can see you can see a twenty minute version on my website, which is bencolecinematographysite dot on the documentary page. Um, we we have to be very careful with the hour long documentary that we can actually get everyone's permission. Uh, we have a trust issue in that. What they said was only really, we were told it was going to be made for a 10-year anniversary. It was going to be put on in the cinema. Uh, We did not say this could go out naming you as a young offender who's been to prison, who's done some horrible things in his life forever on the internet. So we are at this stage uh, finalizing the last permissions But you can see a 20-minute version on either a bandofbrothers.org.uk or on my website. Um, And there are plenty of things. You just put in a band of brothers mentoring young men uh, into the Internet. You'll see lots of stuff coming up. And in the future, it will. Once we're out of lockdown... Uh, we have eight groups all over the country teaching anyone, that's you listening, uh, who can become a mentor. And when you understand that mentoring somebody is not about giving advice, it's not about being the guy who knows, it's about being the guy who will listen and then who will ask a question, what do you think you need to do about it? What do you need? And then listening.
0: I was going to say that's the second part of the of what's powerful about the documentary, because I was I was in the flow of this of lots of these brilliant stories from these young men who turn their life around, and then the narrative begins to slowly turn in turn into and reveal that the mentors themselves have had as much a revelatory experience through mentoring and what they go through themselves in that in the idea I guess revealing about them finding stuff about themselves they hadn't really confronted, and they become better men at the same time.
2: Exactly. Well, I cannot mentor a young man who's come out of prison, who's at rock bottom and be pretentious or assumptive. I can't make assumptions. I've got to gain his trust. I've got to be accountable for my actions or he'll call me on it. And I cannot make the assumption that he is not a world leader in potential. I cannot make the assumption that he might be the next world leader. I've just got to take him of who he is. And one thing I have learned is young men who go to prison are, are young men hurt that they've had no opportunity to shine because they know they've got something special. So they kick up a fuss. They do a crime. They lead a a bunch of other young men into something that might make them survive. And they have pure potential. Uh, If you take a young middle class kid with a polished ego and try and crack him open and help him out and give him a mentor, he's so much harder to crack. He's got more to lose. And he wants his polished ego. And it becomes uh, a fight, a fight between... Um, You know, somebody who is hurt can heal. But somebody who doesn't even know that they're hurt, doesn't even know that they're ruining this movie, well, they've got to know it first and then ask for help. Um, And I suppose if I had a number six, it would be ask for help. Know what your your limitations are. If you don't know something, ask somebody because there's bound to be somebody standing around you that knows. And it might be the lady cleaning up the cups. You know, on that horror movie with Anthony Perkins, every night he gave his limousine to the lady who cleaned up the cups on the set. She was ninety-two years old. She had as personally assisted Marlena Dietrich in movies in, in, in the old times. She was a she was the ascot of the movie. She was the most important person on set. If she was happy, uh, then everybody was happy because she used to go around and bless people and tell people how good they were at their job, how she'd been watching, and how Marlena Dietrich, who had just signed had signed this card in the 1950s, um, had actually would, would have really admired what they were doing. Do you know what that kind of blessing on a film set means? It means for the rest of the day I think I'm good enough. And so Anthony Perkins used to pour her a glass of brandy and give it to her as she climbed in his limousine and he would walk back to the hotel with me and we would talk about the movie industry. Mm. And she would have a beautiful rise home as a movie star she really was. Mm. Listening. Perkins listened to her, listened to her experience, realized she was the most important person on the set. What did she do? She cleaned up the cups.
0: Well, look, I um, I wish you luck finishing off a band, your Band of Brothers film, a ten-year celebration. And before you go, I'm just going to quickly. So the five, the five great powers of collaboration, which you've talked about to uh, at length on each one, is accountability, trust, integrity, assumption, and listening. Um, and I think I think there's a lot to take. There's a lot to take on board there. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and sum it up myself as to what it all means because I think I need to ponder that. Uh, It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. You're welcome.